Graham's done well. It's been lovely to hear the cornet played again. And somehow it just doesn't sound right anywhere else in any other medium other than here. Uh, glorious. We thank God for worship in song. Well, as we turn once again to the book of Exodus, and specifically to Exodus chapter 25, let me encourage you to have it open before you. Let me remind you that in recent weeks we've been focusing our minds from the inspired text of Exodus on this picture of the most significant structure ever built. Collectively, with our mind's eye, we have been appreciating the sanctuary or the tabernacle. These are two words that were used to describe, to name this structure which God designed. He gave to Moses there on the mountain the pattern, and he commanded that this structure and its contents be manufactured exactly according to plan and erected in the wilderness. This portable mobile place of worship where God would dwell and meet with his people comprised, this is a good time to put the picture up, there it is, you see that it comprises a a perimeter partition as you look down uh, in plan mode, you see the perimeter partition that uh, encloses a tent, this tent measured 15 feet by 45 feet, so there is this open uncovered courtyard, and then the tent has got two divisions, the holy place and the most holy place. Now, last week we we were situated in the text in the most holy place where there was just a single item of furniture by way of revision. It was an item of furniture that really had two component parts to it. This item was only seen once a year and only by one man on a specific day, the Day of Atonement. And there we pictured the first two of the seven items of furniture. Really one item of furniture, but we described it as two. The Ark of the Covenant comprised a gold chest with an ornate lid that functioned as the place of propitiation. And uh, we did marvel together last week that in the, the space between the cherubim, above the cherubim, these two cherubs with their wings, the two cherubs faced each other. They looked down in that space, very holy, awesome space. God dwelt there in cloud form. There's mystique and mystery involved in that. The tablets of the testimony that were inside the box spoke of guilt because they were the law, the legal standard that we are unable uh, to keep. And the cherubim where God's presence was situated in holiness above the lid that speaks of such awesome perfection And between the failure of the law and our inability to keep the law and God's holiness, there is this lid where the blood of sacrifices would be ceremonially sprinkled by the high priest once a year. 
Now, one of the things that we pondered last week, and I trust that you've thought about it in this week that has passed, is that this picture of the gospel must be very precious to every believer. We're in the Old Testament, but we're talking about New Testament truth, gospel truth, because what we saw last week as we looked at the Ark of the Covenant is this threefold gospel truth that a that sinful mankind is unable and unwilling to obey the law represented by the box with the tablets of testimony inside the box. And then there is this infinitely holy and awe-inspiring God who demands perfection. And you can see the disconnect between the broken law and a holy God. And of course... The gospel reality is the mercy seat where the propitiating blood was put is to be to us and to all people for all eternity the preparation and the foundation of our appreciation of the Savior because he is the one who can bring together to reconcile a holy God with sinners. Sinners who rightly fear a holy God. A holy God that rightly despises and is angry with sinners. The blood of atonement. Blood shed by the Savior. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That blood was smeared on the seat. A gospel picture, a glorious gospel picture. Now, just for a moment before we read the next portion of this historical narrative that God has inspired Moses to write for us, we want to engage our minds just for a moment. So if you can keep that picture of the Ark of the Tabernacle in your mind in preparation for reading this next portion of the Exodus narrative, let's just consider for a moment the nature of religious ceremony. Because I think we've got to enter into the reality of God describing himself by giving meticulous instructions. I think we've got to ponder not only the details, but the very fact that God has given very specific instructions with very particular dimensions regarding a structure that he wants to have built. And then to think that this structure was situated east to west, not just put down anywhere haphazardly, but east to west, and the entrance is on the east side. We'll talk about that in time to come. But this structure is only entered by designated persons at specific times. We can't overlook those details because this reality of religious ceremony really must give to us an appreciation of formality. 
When you think of the kind of God who would give this kind of detail and have this kind of expectation of people like you and me, you begin to get a very necessary picture. And it's into that picture that the detail can be inserted. There is mystique, friends. There is ceremony. There is a sense of draw and protocol and regulation and soberness and intentionality. What's the point? The point is simply this. Don't mess with God. God is a consuming fire. He's dangerous. He's dangerous. There's got to be a sense of trembling. There's got to be a sense of reverence. We're not simply talking about chappy paper nonsense. We're talking about an incredible structure from an incredible God with an incredible purpose. Let's read about it in Exodus 25. Exodus 25, our text passage, verses 23 to 30. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Religious ceremony. As I began to ponder this and typed out this text, and underlined things and circled other things in different colors in my mind and in my Bible. My mind was taken back to a a very embarrassing little episode in my own life. I don't often share personal illustrations, but I do want to share this one. I remember with shame my first day at the police academy. There I was with 35 other men arranged in a little bunch outside the barracks in this July intake in the police college back in the year 1985. And for some reason, the sergeant who was on the raised platform in front of us looked at us, it was supper time, and he had said a few introductory things and it was now time to go to the dining hall for supper. We didn't have our uniforms yet. We'd get them tomorrow. We were just a ragtag bunch. And he looked down and he said, Yay, what is your name? Bietge, Sassant. Bietge, Fadi Mana Manasi Tu. Okay, Sassant. Okay, Mana, come on, Schan. 
And you can imagine the pandemonium that broke loose because I thought we were just going to traipse off like a bunch of a bunch of cats to the Manasi. Nia, 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 stand still, Pietre. Now, of course, I can't say it like he said it because there were all kinds of words uh, in, interspersed in there that aren't in the English language, they're in the French language. Um, he said, You can't do so, do you? You can't drill on school. Drill? What is drill, son? What was it on an English school? Ach, you're an English man. Is there anyone here that can drill? And then, of course, another guy who ultimately was the platoon leader put up his hand. And then I was, he had my attention because what did you want me to do? I mean, I went to an English school. We didn't do drilling at school. And then I got an education. No, no, no. This thing needs to happen in right angles. And this thing needs to happen on instruction. And everyone's going to stand in a certain place, a certain distance from one another. And then there's going to be a certain instruction and you're just going to turn exactly 90 degrees. And then with the same leg, you're all going to move off at the same time in the straight lines to the dining room. It's not just a matter of, hey, man, come on, And you can see why that picture stuck in my mind. Because that's the kind of God that we have. Things have got to happen according to structure. Things have got to happen in right angles. They're not sloppy. They're not fuzzy. They're clear. God is, the God of the Bible is, friends, make peace with it. The God of the Bible is a rigid God. He's a kind God. He's an inviting God, but he's a rigid God. He's got sharp angles. There's decorum to God. There's protocol. God is proper. God is definite. He's not casual. That's just a fact. Well, let's look at the picture now. Maurice, you've got a picture of, there's the table. There's the table as it was described for us in our text. Notice what it looks like. That's exactly as God wanted it in terms of its shape, in terms of its dimensions. Thanks, Morris. You can move our attention from there back to the text. Because let me lead you now in giving you five observations from the text. Five observations. We want to put our attention where it belongs on the sacred text. Because, friends, as we give attention to the text, as we follow our finger and the words, this is a way of expressing our love for God and our submission to him and our dependence upon him. What observations can we make about the text? Well, I won't say much more than simply to highlight once again, as I've done the previous two weeks, notice the 11-fold appearance of the word shall. God is not giving Moses suggestions. God is not saying, I suspect that the best way to do this is this way. But you might have a better idea. That's not the God of the Bible. Do it this way. You shall make it like this. And so we have that word repeated again and again. Notice also the reality of Moses making things. And obviously we mentioned last week that there was some stuff that Moses made himself specifically the box in the Ark of the Covenant. 
But obviously Moses had this made, but he was responsible to make sure that it was made. And so you, you see the word make comes up in the text again and again. We're going to draw some attention to that a little later by way of application. But then notice also the poles for carrying the table. We saw these poles with the Ark of the Covenant. But here's an interesting difference. With the Ark of the Covenant, these poles made of acacia wood covered in gold were inserted in rings. But with the Ark of the Covenant, they were told to remain in the rings. Don't remove the the poles. But here, that picture's gone, leave it gone. I just wanted to see whether the poles were still in it or not, because the poles shouldn't have been in it. It seems as if the poles were removed. We're not sure where the poles were put. Did they stand up in the corner of the tent? Did they lie at the base? But God gave a specific instruction regarding the removal of the poles or the non-removal of the poles in verse 15 with reference to the ark, but he doesn't say anything about the poles being removed from these rings of the table. Furthermore, notice the use of gold. Four times the precious metal is mentioned, and a further two times pure gold is mentioned. We saw that distinction between gold and pure gold uh, in the case of the ark as well. But then notice that the table and its manufacture and design is merely one aspect of what we have in the picture before us. Because in verse 29 we see a further mention of the utensils that would be on the table. And then in verse 30, most importantly, we have mention of the bread of the presence. It's very easy to get the impression that the big issue was the table. But clearly that's not the big issue. The big issue is the bread on the table because it is capitalized, the bread of the presence. This is to be put there before God regularly. You see, the bread is the very reason there is a table. And on the table would be these 12 loaves. And on the table with these loaves would be these utensils, a jug of wine, and a bowl into which it can be poured. And I mean, you just pause for a moment and think of God just saying, that's what you're going to do. You're just going to have this pouring ceremony, just as a, an offering to me. Wine poured from a jug into a bowl. And of course, there will be a pan of incense that will be burnt on the incense altar, the altar of incense. Let me read two passages to you. One from Leviticus 24. Listen to these words with reference to the bread and the utensils. Leviticus 24 verse 5, You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings 
a perpetual dew. From those details, one of the things that we need to recognize is that this bread was not there for God's benefit. God doesn't need anything from us. It's not like pagan gods. When we went to India, Maury and I, we were amazed to see these, these little piles of food in little shrines being put out for the gods. And we just found it just so ridiculous because clearly those gods don't even exist. How can they come and get this food? It's got to be, the rotten stuff has got to be taken away. New stuff has got to be put there. That's pagan worship. This bread is not put there for God's benefit. This bread is just there before the Lord. But it's not wasted. Because the priests themselves eat it. When they take that bread away and put the new fresh loaves, that bread is for them to eat. But notice the detail of God, he's not only interested in what happens when the thing is stationary, but what happens when it moves. Notice Numbers chapter 4. Listen to, to, to three verses. And over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put on it the plates, the dishes for incense, the bowls and the flagons for the drink offering. The regular showbread also shall be on it. Then they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet and cover the same with a covering of goatskin and shall put in its poles. Isn't that amazing? That God doesn't just prescribe how it will be made. God doesn't just prescribe how it will be stocked. But God prescribes how it will be packed and transported. Friends, as we read these words of sacred text One of the lessons we've got to be learning is what God is like. The God of the Bible is meticulous. The God of the Bible is a God of detail. Let's talk a little bit about the construction of the table. We've taken note of the text, what it says, how it says it. Let's just clarify in our minds the construction of the table. You've noted its dimensions. It's just half a cubit smaller and narrower than the ark. But interestingly, it's exactly the same height as the ark. Like the ark, it's made of acacia wood covered in pure gold. It has a crown molding around it, sort of below the table surface, it would seem. But then above the table surface, it has a rim, much like this pulpit has, just a hand's breadth wide. Very much like this pulpit. The table would have this, this border on it. What's the purpose of that? I think a practical purpose so that things won't slide off the table as it's transported. Because remember from the Numbers passage that these things are on top of the table covered in this blue cloth and the red cloth and the goat skins and the poles are inserted for carrying. Well, having chewed over the text, with the table laid before us and our minds now beginning to move from the audible word to the visible word, we wonder to ourselves, I hope you're, you're wondering to yourself, what's the meaning of all of this? Why would God, this God of detail, why would he give us all of this? What's the spiritual significance? How can this enrich our lives living in George in October of the year 2020? Why would God give us this? Well, before I mention a couple of practical lessons 
that we can learn and take home with us. Let me just remind you of an important thing that was raised last week. It is the biblical reality of typology. Typology. I think it's a, a word that every Christian should have in their vocabulary. But you should appreciate that what is happening is this reality of type and anti-type. That God speaks to us using pictures that have a meaning in and of themselves in their context. But more importantly, they are shadows that are telling us of a greater reality. And so, as we saw with the ark, so too with the table, there is a sense that we've got to be working typologically. What is this a type of? The type is the table, but what is the anti-type? We saw with the Ark of the Covenant that the type is the box and the lid, but the anti-type is Christ. So how does all of this fit together for us? Well, six things. I mentioned them in quick succession. Number one, won't you notice that God uses means? The bread is clearly meant to be the focus of our attention, not the table. But the table was necessary for the bread to be there. Interesting that God would be that practical. There needed to be a table to hold and to display and to set out the bread. And that leads us from the first lesson that God uses means to the fact that God is so practical. He describes all the details. God gives instructions for things to be made. God uses means. God is practical. And having been made in his image, we need to use means and be practical. But notice thirdly that bread represents God's basic providential care. He didn't have to, if you think of it, he didn't have to have this arrangement of of 12 loaves, clearly representing the 12 tribes in two stacks of six. Why did he do it? He did it to feed, to ceremonially feed the priests who would eat that bread at the end of the week. And so Jesus has taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. That needs to be a prayer that we pray regularly. Lord, give me what I need. But then fourthly, won't you notice also that the food and its eating is a critical aspect of fellowship because God dwells with his people. And I was amazed, you were amazed, we were amazed together at that scene in chapter 24 where God actually eats with Moses and Aaron and those other elders there on the mountain. God is a God of fellowship. We're having some folk for lunch. We love that. It's part of the highlight of our week because When you eat together, something special happens. Is it any surprise that God requires elders to be hospitable? We've got to have people in our homes. We've got to get into other people's homes to eat with them because somehow when we're eating and drinking together, there's a different kind of chatting, a different kind of fellowship. And this table and these loaves of bread speak to us of God being a God of fellowship. But more specifically, this bread is a picture of Jesus. 
As you'll hear in a moment as I read from John chapter 6, Jesus referred to himself using the image of bread. He wants us to feed on him. This bread was in the presence of God. It's called the bread of the presence very significantly. The 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And the point is this, that God knows what we need, and he faithfully provides it, and we can eat in fellowship with him. But most importantly, the sixth and final takeaway before we move to the table is simply to realize that our greatest need is not physical, it's spiritual. And of course we know that, but the question comes, do we know how to feed on Christ? As God explained through Moses to his people in Deuteronomy, And Jesus quoted those words, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that has proceeded from the mouth of God. Clearly, God's intention is that this passage, passages like these should make us feel welcome to come to God. Passages like these should really cause us to contemplate our hunger and our need to feed on Christ. As we sang in that song a moment ago, Come those whose joy is morning sun and those weeping through the night. Come those who tell of battles won and those struggling in the fight. For his perfect love will never change and his mercies never cease. But follow us through all our days with certain hope of peace. Well, without any further ado, I'm simply going to read John chapter 6 to you and then we'll meet. We'll meet at the table. Listen to these words that tie it all together with reference to Christ and bread. John chapter 6, reading from verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. 
Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh... And drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful that you have entrusted deep truth to us. We do thank you for every means that you use to help us to picture all that is described for us in this historical text. We thank you for that structure in the wilderness, and we thank you for its furnishings. And we thank you that you prescribed a table to be made, a table that would be on the north side of the holy place, a table that would hold 12 loaves of bread, A table that would hold utensils, a bowl and a jug, and a pan of incense. And, oh God, we we do want to pause and thank you for all that you have prescribed. Help us to enter into the wisdom of it and appreciate the depth of ceremony that you were inculcating in your people. But Lord Jesus, we do want to thank you that you are that bread. You have come down from heaven, from the Father to us, and we want to feed on you. And we do want to thank you now for this table that is laid before us, a symbolic meal. It won't satisfy us in terms of its volume, but it will nourish our souls because of its symbolism. And so we thank you for bread that can signify your body, Lord Jesus, a body in which you lived the one perfect life. And we do thank you that we can drink a red liquid which signifies your blood, symbolizes your blood which you shed for our sins. And so we thank you that in our eating and drinking, we thank you that in our coming and taking, We thank you that in our remembering and proclaiming there is great ceremonial significance and spiritual well-being. 
nourish our souls as we express our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. O God, as we hear and then as we take and touch and taste, nourish our souls, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, this is a meal which is only for those who know this Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is a meal only for those who want to feed on Christ, specifically, spiritually. They don't want to feed on their own achievements. They don't want to look to themselves, they want to look to Christ. They don't want to proclaim themselves, they want to proclaim Christ, his body and his blood. And so I'm going to invite you to come in the three ways that you can come and uh, sanitize your hands before you get there. I think that's just a loving thing to do. And then once everyone has been served, back at your seats, we'll give thanks and partake together. The Lord bless you as you come.